Yeah, on. Two twins. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or should I say, hot dog, hot dog. <laughs> right? That's that's what you think about when you think about Led Zeppelin, right? Hot dog. Oh yeah, I bet I bet hot dog makes the top five for pretty much every zeppelin fan i would think but uh listen if you can't tell by our voices and wait till you hear the sweet sultry sounds of nubs um it's morning time good morning nub morning drive top of the morning to you pal we uh occasionally the timing works out to where we you know drop a recording in the a.m and that happens to be this. We're going to we're going to get the lead out nice and early. What do you think, Nub? You ready to get the lead out or what? Let's go. Hey, we got a two for Tuesday here with uh, <laughs> getting the lead out. You know, you wonder, did that get the lead out thing? Like, did one radio DJ say that? And then it just totally became a thing. I mean, every station, every rock station in the 90s was getting the lead out. So it's really funny. I was actually, you know, during the uh, the show research, you know. I was trying to find the origins uh, of that, that famous phrase, which I, I do think came from a radio disc jockey. And all that kept coming up was this Led Zeppelin tribute band called Get the Let Out. And like that dominated the, the search. So I really couldn't find the origins. Maybe you're aware. But yeah, I do think that that came from some... Uh, some doofus on rock radio in the seventies, if I had to guess. You know my all-time favorite Zep tribute band because there's been several. I don't, I can't remember if you went with me to this or not. But when I was covering music in the mid two thousands, a new one emerged. But this one was it had a little different twist on it, and you might guess what it was. But they were called Les Zeppelin. Ah, okay. So they were four ladies. Uh. uh putting on a uh, Led Zeppelin tribute act. How was it? Incredible. The, nice. the plant figure, she just howled. I mean, just an incredible voice. Like probably the best voice I've ever heard on a, on a non-super famous, you know, touring band. Yeah. And the bottom was, you know, sort of kind of stocky, you know, athletic drummer. And she just wailed, like just like pounded the drums. And the guitarist said the Jimmy Page pose just down pat. I mean, it, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. It was really great. powerful well, visually, but the sound was fantastic too. Obviously there's, there's no downgrade. I mean, you know, if it was a Barry White tribute band, that might be difficult, but when you're trying to replicate Robert Plant's vocal, obviously there are plenty of, you know, very talented ladies out there that can, that can replicate that extremely well. I, one of the things that, um, was so cool in more recent Led Zeppelin history was the Kennedy honors. Um, when the, the band was dedicated into, to the, um, Kennedy center and Anne and Nancy Wilson, um, got up there and did stairway to heaven. 
and uh Anne's Vogel was just insane. And Robert Plant was actually crying during the performance up in the, you know, they put the the inductees up in the balcony and it's this stunning performance. And you look at the band and they're like into it. And I mean, it's just so cool. And, you know, by the end, because her vocal was so powerful, you know, plants like literally wiping tears from his face. It's a really cool thing to go back and check out for those of you that haven't seen it. I don't know if you've ever seen heart live. First of all, Anne's voice is just unfairly good. Yeah. Yeah. But they always do like a section of covers. And I remember we went and saw them a few years back and they did Misty Mountain Hop and just like completely rocked it. And then they did like the full version of Love Rain Army by The Who. Ooh, nice. And I, I mean, it was just stunning. It was incredible. Like the heart, heart is a pretty amazing band. If you ever have the chance to go see them, make sure and do it. Well, you know, there aren't many people that can say that, that they got the lead out in front of Led Zeppelin themselves and brought them to tears. That's pretty incredible. So, uh, you know, let's see if uh, anything else has brought us to tears lately as we uh, take the show round and round. All right, Nub, three albums on the radar. What do you got, buddy? First would be the album Eclipse from 2011. This is by Journey. And I pretty much gave Journey up once they went to this new new singer. You know, they've had new singers and then they've had new, new singers. And then they had a new, new, new singer. And I was like, I've had enough of this. But the band is still so good. So I was able to score a copy of Eclipse and it's, it's quite good. It's, it's well-produced and Neil Sean still completely rocks on it, but uh, yeah, I'm still kind of, I'm giving this guy a chance. I know he's been in the band now for like, you know, 15 years or whatever, but I don't know T when bands change vocalists, it's like, it can either really work and be awesome or it can just be a total train wreck. And I'm trying to work my way through this one, but. Well, particularly know. when the original vocalist was, was decent. You know, that, that makes it even trickier. Yeah. He could, uh, he could do a few things. That guy, he was pretty good. Second would be, I continue to get into these albums of, uh, orchestrated music from rock bands. So I picked up a copy of one called arrested, very clever name, which is the music of the police played by the Royal Philharmonic orchestra. And that's pretty cool. It's just interesting to dig into some of these orchestral interpretations. So I've been digging that. And then lastly would be. I heard a reference to this album on a, another podcast I was listening to and rediscovered Welcome to the Real World by Mr. Mister, which is, to me is like an 80s classic. You know, it's got Kiri, it's got Broken Wings, yeah. Uniform of Youth is a very solid album track on there. And drums. It has Is It Love too, which was a huge single. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's just packed with hits. So I've been listening to that quite a bit. It's still delivers, man. 1985 absolutely still delivers on that record. So that's what's running around for me, T. What, uh, what's spinning around for you? Well, I got to say, following up on last week, I got I to give a report on last week's round and round. And you indicated this, and it made me a little nervous. But boy, were you right. The new Royal Blood album is horrible and sad. I mean, they've completely gone festival rock. And they've completely gone, you know, electronica 
And just yet another example of a band getting talked into by whoever, a producer, an executive producer, a label, who knows, of completely derailing this raw, stripped out. And Royal Blood was one of the few, one of the few that was really bringing kind of this raw energy, um, this raw rock energy, and have since completely ruined it. I mean, I hated listening to this. It was. Not enjoyable. And I did have that as my round and round last week to uh, try and sample that within the last week. And I don't think I'll be listening to that much, much anymore. So you nailed it. Those guys uh, chalk them up to yet another modern group that was really good that has since uh, become overproduced and ruined themselves. You know, what's interesting to you is that it's not even really a record label thing anymore. I mean, maybe it is. Who knows? But it seems now the pressure has all come from a lot of other sources for these bands to just automatically change into this sound. It, yeah. And it comes down, it, there's a science behind it. It's like the number of beats per minute in the song and things like that. Like it's, it's becoming so formulaic and yeah. I mean, how many great bands have we seen now just completely fall into that trap? It's like, don't they know that we kind of know <laughs> it's like, we know that you're doing this for like commercial purposes and you're starting to write songs as a science, not as an art. And that's, yeah, that's just devastating. man. I agree. Well, you were right. It's, uh, it's junk. So anyway, let's get to some things that aren't junkers. The first is by a very non junkie band that being Duran Duran. And this is all you need is now, which was their release from 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Sort good of- album. Oh, yeah. Sort of a return to their roots as far as their original sound, which obviously heavily influenced by Japan and a bunch of other bands around that time. But boy, they took it to another level and huge Duran Duran fan. All You Need Is Now, probably one of their better, you know, more recent modern uh, records. So I've been taking that one in. The second is Dave Matthews Band doing a little Every Day, um, which was where uh, they really kind of busted out the. Uh, for the first time, some of the more uh, electric guitar elements and kind of reshape the sound a little bit. Some fans don't like it. I think it's really good. Um, there's some interesting composition there. Obviously, Glenn Ballard, who we talked about on the Alanis episode, heavy production hand there. And the third is uh, kind of another band tied into one we've focused on before, and that's Deconstruction. This is the Dave Navarro, Eric Avery project that was post Jane's addiction on the American records label. And it's quite good. If you're just looking for some mid nineties, I guess we'll just call it heavy rock. So good stuff. LA there. song, man, LA song, open uh, <laughs> LA song. So good. And, and get Adam track three, just man. Yeah. Just makes you want to run through a brick wall. It's good stuff. You know, one of the things, I mean, we've talked a lot about debut albums. We've talked about sophomore albums a couple of times. Have we really hit finales that hard or, you know, dare I say it, swan songs? Huh? You like oh, that? Oh, well you played. Like, you like that tie-in? Have we hit any finales yet on the show? I'm, I'm trying to think back and see. It's a great question. And I, I think maybe we've gone 44 episodes without doing a finale. Oh, you know what? We did LA Woman. That was a finale. Oh, that's right. In a a legendary one. Yeah. And yes, I did have to consult the list in order to clarify that. So, but I believe 
that to be the only one. So, you know, one of the things obviously we've done, we've done several albums that were the last good album, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. AKA that's right. Weezer. Yeah. Finale of quality. But, uh, but yeah, you know, there are, there's an interesting dynamic always to finales. And in this case, you know, the band didn't know, I mean, the band was going through a lot of, a lot of shit and we'll talk about it, but you know, the band didn't know this was going to be their last album, but you listen to it and you can kind of hear the band sort of breaking up. Now, obviously they split because they lost a band member who was fairly important. Um, but you can still kind of hear the band breaking up. You and I have talked about, you know, the final cut by Pink Floyd and you, we've talked about let it be and other albums. I don't know if any others come to mind where you can kind of hear the band breaking up a bit. And usually there are some similar, consistent, defining characteristics to it. The band generally has stopped being as collaborative as they once were. So things become a little bit siloed. That seems to be a common thread or one person kind of spearheads the creative process or the execution, which is often the case. And all those things apply here um, on this record, which was the final studio recording from obviously a legendary uh, group that will be eternal in the rock world. So um, plenty to talk about uh, related to the band, related to the record. I say we jump right into this sucker. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? In Through the Outdoor was released on August 15th, 1979. On the Swan Song label. It was the Swan Song brought to you by Swan Song. How about that? It was the eighth and final studio album from Led Zeppelin. Uh, this was recorded in Sweden and the sessions were interesting, as I mentioned, fairly siloed. Uh, John Paul Jones and Robert Plant uh, contributed most of the creative process and they were sort of the two members of the band that were keeping it pretty professional, keeping it pretty clean. And they would spend most of the days laying down these sessions. And then in the evening, no pun intended, uh, the two other band members would roll in who weren't exactly clean and weren't exactly professional. Um, and that being Jimmy Page and John Bonham. And they would show up in the evening and contribute their parts and, uh, and their various, uh, composition contributions, uh, albeit for the most part, by the time they showed up, a lot of these things were already in motion. So it was a very interesting, probably as uncollaborative of a session as the band had, but it did really shape the sound and direction of the album in a very interesting way. Uh, with the uh, sort of drama that surrounded this, and we'll dig further into it, it was a, an enormous commercial success, as were all Led Zeppelin records. This was number one on the billboard charts and on this album's release this is this is crazy i didn't know this until kind of doing research here nub led zeppelin's entire catalog was on the billboard 200 between the weeks of october 23rd and november 3rd 1979 that is insane i mean that just shows the phenomenal popularity of this band that by the time their eighth studio album came out you could still dig back and it sort of lifted all boats to bring their entire catalog back into the Billboard 200 for a matter of a couple weeks. That's, that's pretty wild. It was also sort of credited with helping revive a U.S. record industry that was struggling 
You know, this was during disco. This was during a time where people were sort of hitting clubs and going off premise to get their musical intake and and radio was really coming up strong and record sales were struggling. You know, this was a time that there was some concern around the record industry, particularly here in the US. And in through the outdoor is being is credited with really helping restore and revive that. And obviously it wasn't just this record, it was the entire Led Zeppelin catalog that helped that. So kind of interesting, Nub, when you put this into the context of sort of what the music scene was at that time and what the business was at this time, the influence and importance that this had on the commercial side of things, which many think of in through the outdoor as a, it's a little bit of a, you know, more of a melancholy type uh, uh, finale. But when you dig through the album, it really wasn't. And we'll obviously get there, but had a hugely positive impact on the industry at this time. It's a kind of enigmatic album. You know, there's a lot of just interesting contradictions to it. There's a lot of weird perceptions about it. It it is sort of the forgotten Zep album. You know, maybe presence has the, a place like in through the outdoor, but it's sort of the one that a lot of people probably would put near the bottom of their Led Zeppelin album lists. But it, it shows you a couple of things. Number one, it shows you the power of the hit single, you know, because it, it did have a couple songs on it, really one in particular that lived on and kept the legacy of the album going for decades afterwards. It also shows you a little bit of the, the cream rises to the top element of the personnel and not to take an ounce of anything away from Jimmy Page and John Bonham, both incredible musicians and artists in their own right, and both completely signature to the band. But what stands out about this album is far and away that John Paul Jones emerged as the kind of visionary behind the album. Yeah. And that resulted in really interesting, fascinating sounds, things that Zeppelin would have never explored before to this extent with all four guys kind of moving in the same direction. So, you know, calling it an album that was made out of chaos might be a little heavy, but certainly this album was made in an unconventional way compared to what Led Zeppelin was used to doing. Sometimes that results in, you know, the most captivating or fascinating part of a band's catalog. And I think In Through the Outdoor falls under that category for sure. It's a great point and a very important one when when sorting through this album. I I I think it was chaotic. Let me let me let me take you through a little bit of what was going on with this band at this time. And and it's an interesting deal because on the deal here, because you know, you you kind of wonder based on the sounds that came out of this record where the band was headed. You know, in some ways it's a little bit sad because you can hear the band really evolving here. Um, but but kind of here's where things were at with Led Zeppelin around this time. They were on a tax exile. Led Zeppelin had all kinds of business drama, obviously led by Peter Grant and the way things were run, the, the way the operation was run. It was, you know, constant drama from a business commercial sense. And, and clearly the, the band had been out of the country uh, within the UK um, on a tax exile. So basically the whole purpose of the title in through the outdoor was the band was really feeling like they were trying to get themselves back into the public eye in the UK. And they felt like that was going in through an outdoor. So that was kind of what led to this. But even from the onset, and even as the title shows, the band was feeling pressured 
to try and get themselves back into the mindset of their home country. And obviously for business slash tax purposes, they hadn't been in the country for some time. One of the tracks on this obviously speaks directly to one of the members experiencing a bout of tragedies, and that is Robert Plant. Robert Plant's son died in 1977, uh, two years prior, of a stomach virus just out of nowhere, and um, which sent Plant back to England when the band was in the midst of a horrendous tour uh, within the U.S., and the band actually never played in the U.S. again after Robert Plant had to go home. Two years before his son died, he and his wife were in a horrible car accident. Uh, out on the Greek island of Rhodes, which Robert Plant sustained injuries that took months of rehab to even get to the point where touring was a consideration. Once the tour was about to start, after he had rehabbed, he got this really strong case of laryngitis, which disrupted that tour, pushed back several dates, and even the first several dates of the tour, many noted that Robert Plant didn't sound very good. His voice is very reliant on the throat element. And whether, you know, being in the midst of laryngitis or even the the several weeks, if not in some cases, a couple months coming out of it can really affect you. Prior to the tour, um, they shipped all their equipment to the U.S. This was a U.S. tour that they were planning and it was going to be a big deal. Robert Plant fell ill and the band went a month without playing because all of their equipment was in the States. So, you know, (laughs) to go a month without playing and then have to go on this sort of this mighty big arena U.S. tour, feeling somewhat under-rehearsed and somewhat under-practiced was a problem. The band didn't have it, you know, its full slate of confidence heading in. And let's also mention that Jimmy Page was pretty addicted to heroin at this time. Uh, John Bonham was heavily addicted to alcohol and drugs. And was going through some bouts of violence and things of that nature. So it it was um, it was pretty. There there was plenty of drama going on with half the band around this time. All right, it was made out of chaos. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna revise that. I'm going so, to redact that statement. Yes. So they had problems on the tour as well. There were there were you know near riots in Cincinnati and Tampa, and then of course this infamous uh, incident in Oakland, California, where Peter Grant and John Bonham and a couple other security people like almost beat this guy to death. That was part of Bill Graham, who was the concert promoter in Oakland, uh, a member of his security team. So there was a lot of cocaine, a lot of violence, a lot of paranoia. There was a list of rules for the crew on this tour. And a couple of the rules included no looking John Bonham in the eye uh, and no speaking to the band. So you know, I, this just became a very odd, paranoid operation. And obviously, the more you learn about Peter Grant and the way he did business, it doesn't, you know, get to be too surprising. But the band was not in a good place. And these shows, this 77 tour was pretty legendary for the band in having a couple good shows. But for the most part, they were awful in terms of the band not sounding good, the band not being inspired. I think that you know, there were a lot of fiscal interests in, in having this tour rather than the band really feeling um, motivated and inspired. And obviously they were under rehearsed going into it due to that equipment issue. So a lot going on here, a lot swirling around within this band 
heading in. Now, we talked about Robert Plant. Let's cover the members really quick, not that we should have to. But Jimmy Page, obviously noted as one of the most influential guitar players in rock history, um, certainly contributed to this album as the producer and contributed plenty as far as composition, but did not have this have the same impact on this that he had in their previous work. In fact, uh, two songs on tonight's album uh, were the first two and the only two in the entire Led Zeppelin catalog that didn't have Jimmy Page. Uh, as a writing credit. Now that's pretty important. You know, you've got a guy that through this, this large illustrious catalog had writing credit on every single song. There are two on this album where his name didn't show up, which is, you know, very, very unique. Uh, John Paul Jones, as you mentioned, Nubs, a, a super big part of the In Through the Outdoor story, contributed heavily to the music on this record and to the overall sound and direction. And obviously, as we've seen with John Paul Jones, um, you know, the longevity and even in a modern sense, when you look at his work with them, Crooked Vultures, which was Josh Homie and Dave Grohl's project where they brought in John Paul to play a bass and keyboards and all kinds of stuff. And a very cool effort. I think we can all agree. Um, John Paul Jones is extremely respected and, and has found ways to continue to contribute without being, you know, Paul McCartney about it, without being kind of annoying about it, without going in a festival rock direction just to stay relevant. He's always been true to his art and his approach. And I think you saw that in his, uh, them crooked vultures, uh, collaboration. The last guy, uh, John Bonham nubs. I'm going to turn this over to you, the resident drummer of the old podcast here. I mean, in my opinion, I'm not sure that anyone even touches Bonham as far as uh, best drummer in rock history, but I'm going to let you take that away. What's, uh, what's your input on that, uh, on that often you know, spirited debate around who the best drummer is in rock and where do you think Bonham falls on that list? I think it's you know, Bonham, Pert, and everybody else. That's kind of where it lands for me. Both very different from each other. That's why it's, it's kind of difficult to choose between the two best hard rock drummer is Bonham, right? I mean, just his tone was, you know, so identifiable. It was so big. It was massive. He also had a great set of hands, could do a lot of things as we'll learn from one of the tracks here on this album. But yeah, it's one and one A for those two. And then there's sort of everybody else, in my humble opinion. You know, and Neil Peart was very different in the genre of music he played was very different, but still rock. So for hard kind of blues based, you know, sort of dumb rock, even though Zeppelin was far from dumb rock, John Bottom would be your number one overall draft pick for anything. That's a little bit more complex, a little bit more winding requires a different take on playing drums altogether. That's where you would go to Mr. Pert. So far and away, you know, one of the two best, if not the best. Well, in sports, you know, they always talk about, you know, hands and speed. And those being things that you can't coach and those being things that you either have or you don't. And those that have both, regardless of the sport, you know, you're probably going to succeed in drumming. Uh, there are two things for me that's groove and power that, you know, you can have one or the other and be very good. Um, very few drummers excel in both. And um, John Bonham had power that was 
basically impossible to match. You've only heard a few drummers really be able to demonstrate it and groove that goes with that. I just can't think of, I mean, Neil Peart's amazing. He's quick. He's got power. Not sure he competes on the groove front. I can't think of many drummers that compare in, in really being elite in those two attributes in particular greater than John Bonham. And we'll get to it further because there are plenty of uh, groove and power moments on this record. Two additional things just to wrap up the deets. Um, and I know nubs, you'll appreciate this. The artwork was very interesting. Yeah, I was hoping I was like, I know he doesn't love talking about sleeve design and artwork and uh, things, but I, you got to bring it up with this one. Absolutely sure. have to. It was very clever, very creative. The outer sleeve was basically a brown paper bag. Um, and it sort of mimicked a, a bootleg album at the time that the, the, the title was stamped. Yeah, there you go. Nubs is holding it up right now. So very unique at the time. And this outer brown paper bag concealed what was behind it, which was the main cover. And there were six different variations of it. Now they were all based on, you know, this, this piece of art that was sort of a recreation of the old, uh, absinthe house in new Orleans. This band really liked new Orleans. You can tell. So there were variations in different poses in different um, characters within these six pieces of art, but they all kind of revolved around the same theme and vibe. And you didn't know which one you were going to get because it was all concealed with this outer bag. So very cool. Uh, and Nubs, I know you'd appreciate that one, buddy. The, the other thing that's notable is obviously the usage of the Yamaha GX1 synthesizer, which John Paul Jones got his hands on. And, and you see that prevalent throughout this record. Whereas, you know, Zeppelin had dabbled in strings and synths and keys and those things. This album really features that. And again, to your point, really bringing that John Paul Jones influence. All right, Nubs, you mentioned hands earlier when you were talking about John Bonham. Do me a favor. I'd love to see your hands right now. Now, why would I want to see your hands right now? Hand check, because we're about to do some sort of trivia question, I think. And now, here on Two Twins in an Album, it's time to play one of our games that I really don't have a good title for. But let's just call it, What Album Was It On? Featuring your host, me, Dumbass Toaf, and your contestant, Dumbass Nubs. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, me. <laughs> All right. I could not think of hand, hand check, hand check. Okay. I could not think of a, a, a good you know name for this. So we're just going to call it, what album was it on? So here we go, Nubs. Nubs has no idea, obviously, that this is happening. I can see his hands, so I know he's not cheating. Although during the intro, he may have pulled up an album list. I don't know. <laughs> You're always so suspicious. Man, no, I, I didn't. Am, I'm on to you, buddy. I'm I will you. tell you, though, I think I'm going to be pretty Hand check. Good. Hand check. I think yeah. I'm going to be pretty good at this. Yeah, okay. Hand check the whole way. You, mm -hmm. you know it. Okay. Well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I got 10 of them. I'm going to give you the tune. You're going to give me the album. I want you to commit right now to no cheating 100% from okay. the second you told me hand check it's very uncomfortable i have to admit my hands are are up so now we usually do this i want to know you, you sound very confident already 
What do you think is going to be a good score here? I think last time we did this game, you, uh, we did the Barry, I think did Barry write it was the last time we did a yeah. game. And, and I think you said that you wanted to get eight. So you want to set it at the same line or you want to go loftier or kind of how you, what's your, we, what's your confidence level, buddy? Yeah. I, th- I think we said six and I hit the over at seven or eight. I think that's how it went. Now you're sandbagging. Now you're low. Barry right. It was a tough game. This, this one. Yeah. I, w- I would set, if I don't get eight or above, I'll be disappointed. All right. Well, let's, let's go with eight or above here. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Now I'm going to name the song. You're going to name the album. You keep those hands up. Keep raising the roof. I will. I'm I'm even going to leave my mute button off because I don't want any, you know, I'm going to keep the hands up. All right. And I'm going to keep very uncomfortable. (laughs) I know it is. I know it is. All right. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Song one. And the other thing is, you know, I'm going to give you a minor time limit. I don't want you sifting through the catalog in your mind. I want to, you know, within five seconds, let's get an answer. Okay. Okay, buddy. Sorry about all the rules. A lot of rules. (laughs) Song one. Royal Orleans. Presence. Presence is correct. You are one for one, my friend. Song number two. Wearing and tearing. Physical graffiti. Is that your final answer? Yes, it is. And it's incorrect. Wearing and tearing is on Coda. Oh, Coda's not an album. Oh, Coda counts as an album in this, buddy. Oh, geez. Okay. (laughs) And it it doesn't matter. You said physical graffiti. Pick five Coda songs. I'll get them all wrong. Okay. All right. Hey, listen, you got one right. You got one wrong. You're batting 500 so far. That's an all-star. Okay. In baseball. All right. (laughs) Okay. Number three. Ten years gone. Physical graffiti. Physical graffiti is correct. You have two correct and great song, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. And one incorrect. Okay. Here we go. Number four. Here we go. You ready? You feeling good? Yeah. Yeah. I feel okay. You want to phone a friend or uh, or use your lifeline or? Yeah. No phone a friend. Okay. I can't quit you, baby. One. One is incorrect. That is on Coda. Oh, jeez. Coda. <laughs> Compilation. It's a compilation. Coda's really biting you in the ass, isn't it, buddy? Yeah, okay. I don't I, I don't think okay. I've ever listened to Coda. You're two and two. Stay with it. Stay with it. Here we go. Keep your head in the game, okay? All right. Here's number five. That's the way. Three. Three is correct. And at the midway point, you have three correct and two incorrect. Well done. Well done. Okay. 
You want a break or you want to, you want a halftime break or no, no, I think we're good. Keep a word from away, a, maestro. A word from our non-sponsors or what? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I, please hurry so I can put my hands down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Traveling Riverside Blues. Physical graffiti. Or coda. <laughs> Traveling Riverside Blues on physical graffiti is incorrect. Traveling Riverside Blues was not on an album. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, you're three and three. You're doing fine. Okay. Your time is going to come. One. One is correct, and that was a good one. You now have four correct and three incorrect. That was a good one. You had to think about that for a second, didn't you, buddy? I, I, you're already figuring this out. The albums I listen to the least are Coda, Little Bit, One. And, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I think you're, you cho- you're choosing. Like you must know my Zeppelin taste because you're choosing the albums I really aren't a huge fan I, of. I think you and everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. No quarter. Houses of the Holy. Correct. That was probably the easiest one. You are now. After eight, you have five correct. Pretty good. Pretty respectable. All right, two more. Hots on for nowhere. Presence. Presence is correct. Starting to get a little street gun. Starting to get a little Uncle Mo on your side here. You now have... Six correct and one more to go. So this will get you to seven, which I think is pretty respectable, pretty respectable relative to your goal. All right. And that two of them were off code and one of them. Oh, stop it. Here here (laughs) we go. Here we go. Okay. Here's the last one. Are you ready? Yeah. Is it a whole lot of love? Okay. Here we go. (laughs) Stairway to heaven. Here we go. In the light. Physical graffiti. Great song. Physical graffiti is correct. You are seven of ten. Not too shabby, considering. God, let's turn this damn music off. Yeah. <laughs> considering you know that uh, I threw you a couple. I didn't. I wouldn't even say they were curveballs. Those were like sliders. Um, and uh, good sliders. Like, well, you, you know, in the you ended know, up in the dirt, and I swung at it. Well, two codas and a non-album are the only ones you missed. I think that's pretty damn respectable. So. Well done, Nubs. Uh, you never cease to amaze all of us with your useless knowledge. Let's get to the wonder stories. Nub, what is your story in uh, getting the lead out properly? You know, not just Led Zeppelin, but Into the Outdoors, an album was an early fascination of mine. I don't know what it, I think it was the cover kind of the paper bag thing and just the imagery of it that made this album kind of stand out. I had a friend in elementary school and middle school named Greg, and he was 
very, very important just in terms of musical awareness and development. And he was a gigantic Led Zeppelin fan. I mean, it, he was, he was monumental in sort of a lot of developments as a listener, but certainly into Zeppelin. And I remember him saying that he hated in through the outdoor. And so of course that meant that I had to instantly get into it and listen to it. So, you know, this band, this album, they're all hallmarks of getting into what we called classic rock music when we were growing up, you know, a couple things just from being Detroit area kids, uh, 101.1 WRIF who got the let out regularly was pretty yeah. instrumental, right? I mean, they used to play. That was uh, Arthur P wasn't it? Yeah. Baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah. They used to play just a ton of Zeppelin on the air. And so, you know, this was a time where radio would drive a lot of your awareness and your listening habits. And so I, I remember that being pretty important. A couple other things that stand out. I do remember very early on our mom having like a dude over to the house and they were watching <laughs> the song remains the same. Was that Ty? Like a guy, remember a guy named Ty. Ty yeah. There was always a tie or somebody. You know? <laughs> there were probably several ties, you know? And I remember the next day being like, Hey mom, you were like watching that Led Zeppelin movie. Like, do you like them? And our mom was like, no, not really. Tie, you want to tie me up with one of your ties? Tie? Tie? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I kind of remember that uh, was a thing. And then for us, you know, I don't think we can really tell our wonder story and you you could probably expand on this without talking about the page and plant show and just the, the opportunity we had in like 1995, I think was the first chance. Maybe it was 94. I can't remember, but when they first did the page and plant reunion, not Led Zeppelin because they didn't invite John Paul Jones, but page plant did a tour and then an album and then another tour. And we saw him on both. And it was pretty incredible, you know, to see those two guys share a stage it was at the palace of Auburn Hills. I remember, and we were just blown away. I think by the whole experience. So, you know, those are just three things that stand out with the Zeppelin story, but it's a band that I think you nailed it earlier. You know, the, this band will live on forever. You know, as long as people are listening to rock music, they will be discovering Led Zeppelin. It's one of those bands that I think won't be terribly difficult to get the next generation interested in, you know, just because of their story and their sound and just how powerful of a unit they were. This band will certainly live on decade after decade after decade. So, yeah, you know, that's just me getting the let out on the wonder story here, T. What, uh, what do you got? Your Zeppelin story might be a little bit different from mine. I don't know if you, I don't remember if you discovered them quite as early as I did, but I, I know it's a band that's always been important. What do you got? Well, more similarities than differences. I had a pal, uh, a kid named Joe, who I was actually in my first band with, and um, he was, he single handedly introduced me to two bands that I'm thankful for today. One isn't as legendary, but still great. That's the band James out of the UK that actually has a new record coming out soon. And I, uh, I love that band. And the second is Led Zeppelin. Uh, he was a fanatic. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, we would spend most of our time when we weren't trying to write, you know, crappy grunge era tunes together, uh, watching the song remains the same. It seemed like, uh, we wanted to watch it every day. And, uh, I liked it. I dug it, but you know, this guy was like, I mean, he would just light up and just gush the whole time. Uh, but Led Zeppelin did that to you. You know, when you were interested, interested in music and 
you sort of realize the, uh, the, the sort of majesticness of the group and in sort of all of their artistic approach. I mean, the symbols and the, the album artwork and the just overall, you know, kind of oddities and the business sense and the, you know, the arena sort of grandness of it all. It, it just is a very unique thing to learn about. And there were a lot of other great bands around this time. And there were a lot of other heavy, heavy contributors to rock and roll, but Led Zeppelin did some things that, you know, nobody had done previously in those ways. And it was very fascinating. So, you know, around this time when you're fairly impressionable uh, musically, and this would have been around the age of 13 or so for us, you know, this was a band that really caught your attention. Now, what I'll always remember about Led Zeppelin, first of all, I learned how to play the guitar heavily by playing along with Led Zeppelin, in particular House of the Holy and Led Zeppelin 2. You know, those are, those are the albums that really taught me how to play the guitar, which I'll always be appreciative of. But, you know, it was the first band where I really dug into their full catalog. I, I hadn't done that with a band before, um, to where you want to know the album tracks and you want to know the progression of each record and you get a sense for kind of the way the band was evolving and expanding their sounds over time. And I mean, it was the first time I can remember that. And it was helped by that gray box set, which had every studio album and then Coda and then sort of the unreleased, you know, which had, Hey, Hey, what can I do? And those type of things on it, which gave you the the full look at their entire recording catalog. And it was I just, like the first band to do that. Don't you remember in terms of, remastered albums packaged together in a, in a kind of coherent way. I don't remember another band because the, the Beatles were, were still poking around with their catalog. Yeah. The Stones catalog was too huge. Yeah. Pink Floyd didn't do that until like 10 years ago. So I mean, yeah, so, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And it, it was a perfect group at that stage to really teach you about album progression, uh, album tracks, deep cuts, all these things that, you know, you start digging into. And at a young age, that was a great practice to learn. I started with that box set, that, that flat four CD box set that gave you some highlights, but it didn't give you everything. You know, you got most of their studio recordings from that and some of the unreleased stuff, but you weren't getting every single album in order. And it was laid out in more of a compilation type of a sense. So um, so that's what I'll always appreciate about Led Zeppelin was it was the first time where you were really kind of forced to take notice of the entirety of a band's catalog and how that evolves over time. And, you know, that's something that I will always appreciate about those guys that and the contribution in helping me learn an instrument, which I basically did by popping those two CDs in and just playing along with them until it sounded like a match, you know, <laughs> and that was sort of how it was done. So more similarities than not, I think on how we came to know Led Zeppelin and certainly how we dug in and uh, came to love this very important band. So Nubs, are you ready to dig into their swan song on swan song and through the outdoor? Are you ready? I don't know, but I think we should do Coda instead. Clearly it's, Clearly, it's one of your favorites. <laughs> and not one of yours. Hey, you still did a great job in the game. Let's be honest. Let's get into the record. Let's go. Let's do it. You know, the band uh, really in their last, I would say, three records that come to mind, 
you know, certainly physical graffiti presence um, in through the outdoor in particular, but you were even seeing shades of it earlier. They really knew how to create an atmosphere, you know, and certainly right from the get go on in through the outdoor, you can tell that they were trying to set a tone and set an atmosphere. Now this album goes in a lot of different directions and that's part of what some love about it and what some maybe don't love about it. But you can't deny that right from the get go, you know, you're getting the table set here in a very interesting uh, and very um, unique way with uh, track one in the evening. You can hear the keyboard already, you know, the synthesizer uh, layer, which is prevalent throughout, starts off in typical Zeppelin fashion with this, you know, sort of, you know, tribal, almost Indian, Middle Eastern type vibe, which, you know, Jimmy Page had been into for a while with a lot of sitar-like sounds and different rhythms and those type of things. Now, he, as we often saw in iconic imagery, used a violin bow. And the um, uh, Gizmotron um, device to kind of get that droning, sort of drawn out sound, uh, which is another kind of innovative sound that you hear in many cases throughout the album. So to kick off, what wasn't he into, by the way? You know, (laughs) Middle Eastern stuff, uh, Satan. You know, I mean, (laughs) well, apparently around this time he wasn't into eating. I mean, at one point he like weighed like eighty pounds. I mean, he was he looked sickly. I mean, it was, you know, it was, he was not a good performer to look at, uh, around this time. Obviously the heroin addiction had a lot to do with that, but, um, but boy, he was still creating very interesting in many cases, tribal innovative type sounds that really weren't prevalent in rock and roll and starting out the album, uh, you know, with that sort of sound and then takes you into this rocker, you know, the sort of mid-tempo rocker uh, seems appropriate. Now, what do you think of track one? I've always loved Zeppelin's approach to the album. You know, they were a true albums band. They were, they were so resistant to release singles uh, just in general. They, they didn't release a lot of them and they hated radio edits and things like that. One, one of the many things they mastered about the album as a piece of art was how you start one. You know, you mentioned it. And whether that be drones or fade-ins, I mean, think about it. You know, Presence starts with a fade-in of Nobody's Fault But Mine. This album starts with a Middle Eastern kind of influenced drone for In the Evening. Four starts with this back mask thing before the vocals come in for, uh, for Black Dog. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they were really good at finding these unique ways to kick albums off. and it sets a mood. It sets an atmosphere. One of the things the band capitalized always on was sort of being mysterious. You know, it's one of the things they protected the most in their brand. So I love the way in the evening starts. I do like the thunderous intro, you know, plant does that treated vocal and then just bam, do, 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 do. And you're right. Now you got this added keyboard layer, which has made the sound quite a bit thicker. It's one of the things I like about the album. It's a very thick, yeah. Sounding album. There's nothing raw about this. You know, some might say it's overproduced. Well, yeah, it is. And that's one of the things that makes it really enjoyable to listen to. So I love in the evening. You know, we, earlier we talked about the Page Plant show. I remember about mid show, they played kind of a cool version of this, really mm-hmm. heavy. And uh, that was kind of the moment where I really started appreciating this song a lot. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, the album, as we'll get into track two here shortly, the, the album takes a lot of twists and turns. But to have that, to your point, that, that thunderous, solid, you know, strong backbeat, strong rocker, you know, good riff, um, you know, rather active vocal. I mean, it's kind of trademark Zep. And I think a lot of people, whether you like the full record or not, certainly appreciate the way things start out. Well, we get into track two. This is one of two in the entire Zap catalog and certainly on this record that did not feature a Jimmy Page writing credit. This is John Paul Jones and Robert Plant bringing to you the South Bend Suarez. Now, part of what I really like about In Through the Outdoor is, you know, it is the finale. Obviously, there are some moments on this record that we'll get to that are very emotional. Um, But there are moments that are very uplifting, very fun, you know. And I think that right from the get-go here on track two, and to your point, these weren't the days and this isn't the band of put your single early in the album or in the second track or any of that stuff. I mean, this was, you know, a, a body of work and it's, it's a short album, seven tracks, but no matter how many tracks or how long the songs or any of those things, Led Zeppelin, like you said, always saw, you know, their records as a body of work. And I like the way that this kind of shows you early on. And it really does. So in the next three tracks, if you really think about it, that the band is looking to, be a bit lively, at least as lively as they were able at this time, because it was a time of some some trauma and some uh, difficulty for the group. But to kind of get that vibe early on, that they're looking to have a good time here on side A, I think it's a cool thing about this one. What do you think, Nub? I do too. You know, the album's interesting in the sense that it has really three songs on it that either shuffle or do like a rockabilly sort of deal. And so near the end of their road, they're looking back at a lot of those early influences. But to me, out of, out of all three, this one is, is a John Paul Jones piano part I love. And it really carries the song. It drives it along. Yeah. And what Bonham's doing on the kit is, is very, you know, Bonham. I mean, it's, it's a shuffle thing, but it's up tempo and it's, there's a lot going on. And uh, I really like this tune. I've, I've always liked the way that in the evening sets up this really dreary, you know, kind of melancholic mood. And then it goes right into this more kind of hopeful, optimistic rock song. Th- this album has legendary range, you know, in some opinions, maybe too much range. Me as the prog rocker, I, that's the thing I love about it. I mean, they're really touching all their different influences and inspirations. Southbound Suarez is a good example of that. For sure. And, you know, I think the the liveliness certainly continues here um, with a track that really Robert Plant kind of set the tone on in saying, you know, there are genres out there that we need to expand to. There's a sound and there's sort of an upbeatness that we need to, you know, try and find a way to be a part of, but not in a trendy way, in a you know, kind of let's explore territory we haven't before. And in this case, it's kind of this Samba meets rock approach. And boy, did they have the drummer to pull that one off here with Fool in the Rain. Oh, 
So this this was really the the song that got me going on Led Zeppelin. Now I knew a lot of their classics, but I think I heard this on the radio, and it was like, okay, who is that? And then you find out it's Led Zeppelin. It's like, whoa! And, and that really sort of was the moment where I realized that there still was so much material and so many songs that these guys had done that you didn't know about or hadn't dug into or whatever it may be. Now, Nubs, I don't know how many times you've done this. One of the things I love to do, and geez, I probably don't go more than a couple months without doing this, is out on the old YouTube there, there is a isolated drum track of John Bonham playing Fool in the Rain. Have you? I assume you've checked this out a time or two. Many times, but in all honesty, I don't listen to it much anymore because it just pisses me off. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, how can this guy be this good? And I suck so bad. You it know? sounds it's- like a guy with five arms. I mean, let's give you a piece of it here because it's just two, extraordinary. One, two, one, two, three, four. I mean, obviously the, the, the tone and the sound is incredible. But listen to those dead notes. I mean, it's like a it's like a machine. And, you know, I mentioned earlier groove mixed with power. I don't know that it gets much better than that, at least in that regard. Uh, Obviously, a drum piece that has an extraordinary impact on this song, but a great riff, a great progression, a great vocal. Nubs, I know you've had your uh, ups and downs, I think, with this one. I have had nothing but ups. I completely love this song. Part of what I want to note, too, from a drumming sense, because, you know, you can comment on this, too, is uh, we've talked uh, many a time about our love for Jeff Percaro and Toto. And that drum beat to Rosanna, as has been well documented and is as well instructed by him on another YouTube clip. And if you listen to it closely, even a non-drummer ear can really hear it. He lifted the beat from Fool in the Rain and combined that with a Bo Diddley beat that he sort of architected into a bit of a shuffle groove. So it's Fool in the Rain plus a Bo Diddley beat incorporating a shuffle groove, and that gives you Rosanna, which was obviously another one of the great standalone drum beats in rock and roll history. So, Nub, I'll I'll turn it over to you. I, I know your viewpoint on Fool in the Rain has always been pretty interesting. Okay, let's start with the strength, the drums. Yes, you're right. Super important drum song. You know, there's a reason the isolated track gets thousands and thousands of views a month on YouTube. I get it. Uh, So one of the best drum songs of all time. Okay. With that out of the way, all I can say is, eh. all right, let's get into it. First of all, it's got one of the worst middle sections of all time of any rock song. It's terrible. It's almost as if they didn't have a clue what to do in the middle. and. They took away all the potential for the song by just saying, hey, let's blow a whistle and go into like this samba thing in the middle for, you know, endless amounts of time and then do the weird steel drum thing or, or, you know, all the other variations that are coming along during that section. And then we're just sort of going to inexplicably find a way to get back into this shuffle. And it just feels like a crowbar opened up the song and inserted this very strange middle section. So that's one. And then the other is just the repetition of the did, 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 did. I mean, it's like 
it works. We get it, guys. And I know that they do the variation later with the do, 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 do. But I don't know, man. It just doesn't, it just doesn't do as much for me as it does others. Now, I want to make one thing clear. I don't hate the song. I don't even dislike it. I just know it's not half as good as most of the world thinks it is because of some of these jagged pieces. So that that's kind of the full in the ring take. It's, it's a good part of a really good album, but outside of that, it's not, I mean, this wouldn't crack my top 25 Zeppelin songs. And for you, I, I would guess, I mean, this is firmly in your top five. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's gotta be. It's gotta be. I mean, it's, Again, it's the one that kind of drew me in and made me realize that these guys were more than just a band that played Stairway to Heaven, you know. So, yeah, I think it it, it kind of holds a, a special spot for me. But when you dig into the musicality of it, and certainly as we played the isolated drum clip, it's uh, it's something pretty special in my view. But this next one, you know, I don't know, Nub, do you think many would describe this as a classic or maybe the song that brought them into Led Zeppelin, I'm not sure. It'd be pretty damn interesting if that was the case, but why don't we get into it here with the great hot dog. (laughs) Now, you made a great point um, earlier related to, and I didn't mention this when I was talking about sort of common threads through a lot of finale records. But one of them is you do seem to see bands looking back at some of their influencers or some of their favorites or some of the genres that they kind of enjoyed or or would often bring them together as a band. And you saw that happen in a lot of cases with bands that kind of knew they were getting down the wire. They almost wanted to pay some homage and tribute to their influences. Apparently, uh, the guys from Led Zeppelin would warm up by playing Elvis songs and Rick Nelson songs. And would just kind of have fun doing so. That's actually how Hot Dog came together. You know, they were kind of doing some fun sort of silly um, rehearsal jams and uh, ended up really developing into into this song. It's a quick hitter. You know, it it rounds out, you know, side A. But, you know, it's good to hear them having fun. Again, it kind of contributes to the more of the liveliness of the record, which kind of stops at this point when you look at the the three tracks that would wrap it up. But uh it's a Led Zeppelin classic, whether you laugh at it or giggle at it or love it or hate it or think it's silly or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. I like hot dog. I really do. It's taking a little time to understand it. But at first, you know, when I was younger and listening to the record, I, I thought they were just taking a piss, you know, like just hey, let's, we got three minutes to burn. Let's, let's find a way to make it ridiculous. But that's right. really not what it is. It's exactly what we've been talking about. They were looking back, they were honoring their influences. And they were also recognizing some of the things they used to do to uh, kind of, you know, pass the musical time and get warmed up and, and kind of those ideas. So, you know, I, I actually think musically, if you just listen to like, if you took away plants, rather ridiculous vocal uh, musically, there's actually some intricacies going on back there that are kind of interesting to hear. So yeah, kind of a hot dog fan. You know, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, let's go from one controversial Led Zeppelin song to another. And uh, I know we're going to have a good time talking about this one. This is Carousel Ombra. (laughs) 
Yeah, baby. Yes. <laughs> I love that intro. So I'm going to play just a couple other clips from this because, you know, obviously the, the, the song sort of works in three parts. Um, I'm going to carve it into four because I think there are, uh, there's sort of one notable section here that I think is worth digging into, but it's really in three different parts, a 10 minute, 30 second song, which obviously for these guys was a bit on the longer side. It's not their longest studio recording, believe it or not. Uh, uh, in my time of dying clocked in at 11 plus minutes. So, but this was their second longest. The working title was actually the Epic as they called it. So um, here's another section that kind of takes you into this slower part. I mean, just great stuff there. And uh, obviously, you know, Bonham's really working the, the two handed hi hat providing quite the groove for it and you know you've got synth elements that are going pretty wild there and and some cool backbone you know guitar and bass obviously backbone holding it together really good stuff it then sort of takes you into this uh slower section which i think most would consider kind of the second section of the tune So a little bit more dreary, a little bit more, um, you know, kind of mid-tempo, um, a little softer, a little more stripped down. The synth goes away and, and these guys are just kind of taking you through something that's a bit more atmospheric. And then the third section sort of takes you back into this more sort of upbeat fashion. And that's how, uh, and that's how you're taken out of the tune. So here's sort of part three. Now, this is probably, you know, the most unique Zeppelin song in the entire catalog uh, in terms of its length, in terms of the synth contribution and in terms of its approach. They had really never done anything like this before. I know what I think of it, uh, but I kind of want to hear you first. A couple other notable things quickly. You know, Jones, obviously, on that Yamaha synth. Jimmy Page is the only song that he played his double neck guitar in the studio which is kind of interesting. That was usually something he only did live. He pulled that out in the studio. Nub, Carousel Ombra, are you a fan? Are you not? I think you're kind of, this is kind of binary. Where are you at? A Alhambra is far and away, like miles and miles ahead. My favorite Led Zeppelin song of all. Yeah. All I probably right. listen to this. I probably listen to this twice a month. I'm still completely intrigued by it. I love that they made a prog rock song. I love it. And it undoubtedly is. What's interesting is they sort of waited until prog had become a dirty word. Cause by the time this album came out, prog was in a sort of bad place, you know, late seventies. And they said, Oh, okay, well th- now it's our time to create as they called it the epic. <laughs> I-, I think it's flawless. I-, I think the way the sections run in and out of each other sets up an amazing story. The keyboard and synth work is such a huge part of the sound. 
you know, the beginning sets a certain atmosphere, the middle, you know, one, one part you missed Maestro, I did like that you broke it up is just how beautiful that I mean, that's one of the prettiest melodies page ever wrote, assuming that it's page. Yeah. And then at the end, you just get into this sort of quasi almost like disco ish danceable thing that just Zeb never did before. So they're capitalizing on their strengths. They're taking a lot of chances. They're doing all this in the context of an album that also contains hot dog and southbound Suarez. It's just magnificent. It's a magnificent track. And it's far and away my favorite Led Zeppelin piece in their entire catalog. It's unfortunate that this song is not held up more than it is just because I think it's such an incredible piece of music. Well, it, it was just absolutely panned by critics, right? I mean, and, and obviously we've. Yeah, not, but see, all prog rock was. It, yeah. it, it was, you know, I mean. Exactly. It, yeah, exactly. And, and not many critics that we, you know, really care that much about. But um, I am with you. I think it's just fabulous. I think it's just fabulous. Now, it took me a while to understand, right? And, you know, when I was first digging into Zap, it was just kind of funny. You know, we, we just kind of go, walk around going, wah, 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 boop, 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 Like, we didn't understand that, like, this was actually really cool. And this actually fit uh, the time period in a very innovative fashion, to your point. So, you know, I think at, at, at some points, this was kind of a, a giggler um, for many of us who were just kind of into their more classic approach to things and their more rock approach to things. But boy, you know, you get a little older and wiser and you spin this 10 and a half minute, you know, masterpiece, I believe, in, in progressive uh, synth driven rock music back in 1979. It's really good. I mean, it's really special. And every section kind of has its own characteristic. I love the way that it does work in this sort of triad of uh upbeat slow and swirly and then to your point almost kind of danceable you know in the in the back third so really really well done i'm glad to hear that i i would have not guessed that it was your top choice but that is really cool and um and obviously i i think very highly of it as well that takes you into something completely different which obviously became you know quite a led zeppelin classic and obviously a, a huge hit for the band with similar approaches in terms of kind of a more swirly synthesizer driven atmosphere, but obviously a very heartfelt song with all my love. You know, a lot of people um, say that, you know, you listen to, to love songs one way before you, you know, go through a bad relationship or you have your heart broken or whatever it may be. And then you listen to them a completely different way after that. All My Love to me is one of those songs that you listen to it one way before you become a parent. And then you listen to it a completely different way. It's very sad. It's obviously about his son, you know, dying at a very young age and very suddenly. And it's sort of a tribute piece to him. And it sort of breaks you up after you've become a parent or become a father in our case, you know, it's, you, you sort of listen to it in a different way that really kind of gets you in the heart and sort of kind of your emotional response. But it's a, I think it's a very beautiful song. Now, you know, this is another one where 
Jimmy Page didn't get writing credit. So this is basically all John Paul and Robert Plant. And you can hear that in the way that both of them progressed as musicians and artists afterwards, that they were kind of taking things more in this type of direction. Um, The middle section is awesome. I really like the way that that progresses. And I think that's important to the song so that it doesn't get too sappy and too swirly. It's a very driving, you know, sort of heavy backbeat, great guitar licks. So I think it's a really well done song. This song got, you know, tremendous response from, you know, most Led Zeppelin fans and, and certainly was, um, was, you know, kind of an important song, I think, in driving the notoriety of this record. Yeah. You're, you're sort of not human if this doesn't touch a nerve for you when you know what it's about and you know, kind of the background of just what, what plant was going through and, and what he's trying to express. But musically, I mean, John Paul Jones is the star of this album. He just is. And that's one of the reasons why many, including you and I love it because it really gave him a chance to shine in a band where it wasn't really his role to shine. And he was always kind of the quiet guy. He was sort of the family man, all the notorious stories about Zeppelin and their partying and everything really didn't apply to him. And he kind of stood at the back and did his thing and such a solid musician though, during the whole run. But this album is his chance to really leave his legacy on Led Zeppelin. And again, that that's polarizing for some because some just think Led Zeppelin is three members. But I love the fact that his his composition is at the forefront and his keyboard and synthesizer work is at the forefront. It is an absolutely devastatingly beautiful song. You know, this is a song that could be covered by many different people. Maybe Dolly Willie roll a little bit here. I was just gonna say, I think that might apply here, buddy. I think so. Huge fan of all my love, huge fan of everything it represents. But more than anything, you know, John Paul Jones just emerges as the the MVP of this album and, and good for him. He deserved that. The album closes out with similar elements, but in more of a little bit of a bluesy, you know, almost kind of old school rhythm and blues type way with the closer. I'm going to crawl. The synth to me kind of saves it. I mean, I think without that, it's just a draggy kind of blues tune, um, which I don't really love on its face. But the synth elements, I really do think help it sort of modernize it a little bit. Um, This really, I think, showed the direction that Plant wanted to go in particular. You saw a lot of his work after the fact sort of go in this direction of things that took on certain genres. Obviously, he covered a lot of different bases, but this sort of, you know, bluesy vocal driven approach with a lot of layers underneath it. Um, you heard him do later as he continued to try and sort of modernize and, and cover a lot of different genres and bases, which obviously as a solo artist was very important to him. I think it closes it out nicely and appropriately. I'm not a huge fan of the song, but um, the synth layers and those type of things give it a little bit of sort of a modern at the time, you know, sort of bluesy approach to things, uh, which I can appreciate. See, I, there is no way I could have said what you just said any better. So I'm not even going to try. Wow. I mean, really? that was, it was like perfect. Really? Yeah. I don't yeah. even know what I said. I just blacked out. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what I said. You've always been at your very best when you black out. Yeah, it's true. We all, we all know that. Well, geez, with that said, that's high praise coming from you, buddy. Well, well, with that said, that wraps up in through the outdoor nubs. Did it matter? 
to non Led Zeppelin fans, it mattered very little to Led Zeppelin fans. It matters because it's the end and it's a fascinating end. It's, it's an end that should be dug into and explored to say that, you know, a, a new Led Zeppelin fan or somebody unfamiliar with the band, or we've talked about this next generation of listeners, you know, should they start with in through the outdoor? No, I, I don't think that would be a wise choice. So there's other albums that would matter more in terms of, you know, trying to get somebody into the band, which is sort of our job now, right? I mean, it's, it's our task as generation Xers to try and carry on all this music, because if not, all kids are going to listen to his festival rock, as we talked about earlier. <laughs> so it is our job to do that. I would not recommend that people hand, you know, don't buy your six-year-old into the outdoors, their first Zeppelin album for Christmas. By you know four two houses of the holy you know if you don't mind naked butts on the cover, uh, <laughs> you don't want to start here. But on the Zeppelin journey, once you get to this place, it's an incredibly important album. But you got to sort of be a fan, I think, in order to get to that place. So it matters, but only to a certain segment. And and there's other things that matter more when you're talking about our job, which is to make sure a next generation of listener encounters Led Zeppelin and appreciates them. So what what do you think? Does it matter? Well, naked butts are fine with me. I, you know, I, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think that if you're an existing either Zeppelin explorer or fan, you got to dig into this and appreciate it for what it is. You definitely don't want to start with it. Couldn't agree with you more. And that was, you know, fortunately for, for me, you know, I started with two and with houses of the holy and, and really got into three eventually and sort of took those building blocks. You're not going to listen to, you know, Carousel Ombra right from the get go and say, oh man, Led Zeppelin was one of the best rock and roll bands ever. But when you listen to it in the context of when it happened uh, within the sort of package of this finale that it happened, it makes you appreciate the band even more. But what I love about In Through the Outdoor is it just took this appreciation you already may have had for Led Zeppelin. And when you dig into it and see where they were heading, it's really fascinating and really interesting, and it makes you appreciate the band even more. It's also a little frustrating because you kind of wonder where this was going, right? I mean, obviously, this was a band that proved in many instances over time, even in their first few albums, that they were willing to push the boundaries, experiment, expand. And it's too bad that they never got the chance. Obviously, John Bonham died in 1980. The band was done from there. And I, I think rightly so. I think to try and proceed without John would be tough. Now they've reunited with Jason Bonham uh, as the drummer and have played a few festivals as Led Zeppelin and those type of things, which have been great. And I'll tell you, Jason Bonham ain't no slouch either. He can, he can really pull off a lot of the technique that his, that his old man was able to. Those O2 shows are so tasty. I love they, listening to those. They're great. I mean, that cashmere from Celebration Day, like, oh, goodness. Um, and obviously we've talked about, I mean, I love Jason Bonham's project, you know, through the the eighties and nineties his uh, his rock project, I think was awesome. So yeah. What's, what's the song you love so much? Oh, holding on forever. Yeah. Oh. Holding on forever. Oh man. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> like that comes on and I'm just happy no matter what like setting I'm in, you know, or what kind of mood I'm in. But, um, so anyway, you know, it, it, it kind of spells out the end, which does make it important. Um, so I, I think it's critical beyond important. If you're kind of within the Zeppelin realm, um, if you're outside of it, get into it and eventually work your way to in through the outdoor, because 
it does really help shape and in this case round out the story all right nub well hey it's time for the final cut which was another finale for another band that was pretty decent are we doing on the turntable are we doing in the collection are we doing collecting dust or are we doing take this to the for sale bin what do you got buddy I look, you take this to the for sale bin. You know, you, you could get shot. Come on. <laughs> See, Enter the Outdoor for me is on the turntable. And it's not because it's a perfect album because it's not, but it's because it has perfect things on it, particularly Cruz Cru- Lumbra. So um the you know, and I I will say for Zeppelin, there's only a couple albums that probably wouldn't be on the turntable. Zeppelin one presence, I'm not a big fan of. But outside of that, I mean, you know, it'd be hard to take any of these. Coda. I mean, you might, you know, you might want to, <laughs> might want to, not an up, album. Might want to brush up on Coda a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're looking at some things on here that are just staples. And again, perfect. I, I shouldn't even say it's not a perfect album because that's so in the eye of the beholder. But to me, it's still a top to bottom album. It's still one that you put on. You want to hear everything. It's got such variety. And it's the last statement. And so, you know what, see, for me, it's on the turntable. Now, what's your final cut? I'm interested in this one. What do you got? I'm going to go on the turntable as well. And because if, if I had to grab one Led Zeppelin album and run, it, it would be this. And again, you wouldn't say that from the get-go, but when you compile the entire catalog and you look at the way that sort of this serves as the epilogue, I think it's so appropriate. I mean, I love the way it kicks off within the evening. I love the fun to be had with Southbound and with hot dog and with fool in the rain. And then, you know, Carousel Umbra's, I, I think it's just so good. I mean, you can, that's a song you could listen to every day and probably never get sick of because there's constantly something to hear and learn and sort of react to. Um, and then it closes, obviously I don't love the closing track, but I think all my love into I'm going to crawl is super appropriate and wraps it up in a bow in a way that's a little bit melancholy, but super appropriate. And the, the album takes you through so many different moods. You know, it's a little silly at times. It's a little fun at times. It just jams at times. Um, you get different genres being hit. You have sort of an epic long piece. You have a, an emotional heartfelt sort of vibe at the end. So yeah, I'm going on the turntable because I think it sums up this band extremely appropriately. Um, little did they know at the time. And it's a little sad to think about what they could have continued to to evolve and could have continued to become. But um, I'm really glad they got this one in because I think it's uh, a critical, critical piece of this very important catalog uh, brought to us by this very important band. Nub, I, I've never really wanted to go too deep into this, but I just want to know what's in your head. Nubs musically. What's in your head, buddy? So first we'll start with uh, U2, Bullet, The Blue Sky, the live version off Rattle and Hum. Not the studio version. Studio version is a little dull. But the live version off Rattle and Hum is excellent. And that came on this past week and I very much enjoyed it. Next would be a little blinker, the star with Below the Sliding Doors. Yeah, great song. Under the clouds of da, 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 you know, the Kenny Words are on the run anyway. Yeah, Just exactly. Ken Andrews is coming in over the top. Yeah, love it. So good. Yeah, it is good. So good. And then lastly would be our our good friend Joe Phillips and few and far between with in loving memory off the album threes. 
Uh, Nubs, I've got uh, a song called Crazy by Ice House. This is the band that was more known for Electric Blue, but uh, Crazy was another sort of a secondary hit for those guys. This was the uh, 80s sort of pop outfit out of Australia. Good stuff there. Uh, then She Did by Jane's Addiction. This is off of Ritual Deal Habitual, which we have focused on before. Similar to, I think, uh, Carousel Ombra, a song that you could probably listen to every day and never, ever, ever get sick of. Incredible song, yeah. And uh, the last one I'm going with is by Janet Jackson, Love Will Never Do Without You, which is one of my favorite Janet Jackson ah, jams. Very nice choice. Nice choices to you as usual. Well, thank you, buddy, you as well. Nubs, an important band for us to talk about. It took us 40 five episodes to get to them but we made it we did it well we did it and uh really enjoyed sorting through this one what a interesting fascinating album to talk about from obviously a rather interesting and fascinating band uh, and i'm glad that you now agree that things were a bit chaotic for led zeppelin at this time because uh they, they kind of were yeah yeah we can use that word for sure no doubt about it <laughs> now I, oh. I need to block off uh 15 minutes on my calendar because I'm going to go right now and listen to Crucialumbra. Yes, I love Well, 10, 10 minutes, 30 seconds is all you need, buddy. But uh, we're going to end this chaos for the moment and call it a day on, or a morning, I suppose, right? Because it's morning uh, on episode 45. And we will see you shortly for a very special episode 46. More to come on that. But you're just going to have to wait. We're just going to have to tickle you. As you wait for next week's new episode of Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care out there and stay safe, please. Two Twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.